Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, October 20th, 2022 is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all the things there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and every now and again, what kind of reefer madness you can find at the dispensaries in town. Also, columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. It's real simple. You already got your smartphone in your hand. I know you're, you're Instagramming, you're tweeting, you're TikToking. Just go over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A, B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Trotsky here. We're calling this Liz Trust Gone Thursday, and here's why. Before I tell you why, let me start with an apology. I've overlooked my duties, and I've overlooked my responsibilities, ladies and gentlemen, and I've allowed myself to be distracted by things that should not be pertinent in my brain, should not be the things I'm obsessing over. I should be obsessing over Brandon Johnson. CTU official, Cook County Commissioner, gearing up to run for mayor of the city of Chicago, supposedly representing the left, supposedly the only candidate on the left. Already CTU activists in wards 30, 33, 35, and 39 on the northwest side of Chicago. If you're outside of Chicago listening up, are rallying around Brandon. I've already endorsed him. Run, Brandon, run. Go, Brandon. Wait. That's wrong. I shouldn't say go, Brandon. I should say run, Brandon, run. Go, Brandon is something else, MAGA-related. I humbly apologize, Brandon Johnson. You might want to consider a name change for this election, Brandon. I'm just saying, kind of, Brandon has been seized by MAGA. I mean, there's such a divide in our country today. I wonder if lefties in the city of Chicago realize uh, that Brandon has been seized by MAGA. I'm not sure if they realize that. All right. Anyway, moving on. Meanwhile, while Brandon Johnson is supposedly uh, the candidate of the left in the city of Chicago, I got word today from someone who is very close to the Jesus Garcia political camp that Chewy himself will be circulating petitions. Not Chewy himself. All right. You guys are such technical people. Always, always, always is like technical. I did a story for the reader. Tangent within a tangent. I did a story for the reader about how I had this horrific plane trip the other day where the plane was late, where there was no refreshments on the plane, where we sat in a tarmac, and some guy wrote in and go, well, Ben, I just went on this uh, airplane ride, and it was early. He's like, nobody cares, okay? No one cares about your early airplane ride. I'm complaining about my ride. No one wants to hear about it. By the way, I didn't believe it. I did not believe it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. I have never heard of an airplane that left early. I've been riding airplanes for thousands of years. Never once has an airplane left. It doesn't even make sense. That's like a violation of the, the ticket. That means if someone is late and is not boarded, they have a right to, I don't know, sue the airline. Anyway, lawyer-like readers pouncing on me. But uh, all right, Chewy is uh, 
folks are going to be circulating petitions, and this will set up a very interesting dynamic in Chicago politics. Uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia supposedly, uh, in the minds of most people, represents progressive Chicago. He's the most significant leftist candidate or lefty candidate in the city of Chicago. In those wards on the northwest side where the, the um, candidates did, the progressives did so well uh, in the last elections, to some degree, that was because they had the endorsement of Jesus Garcia. Now, I realize that Jesus Garcia's position as the leading progressive in the city of Chicago or one of the leading progressives in the city of Chicago is largely because, and I'll strike largely out of that sentence, is because Karen Lewis, uh, former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, plucked him from anonymity and endorsed him in 2015 and gave, her his, gave him her blessing to run against Rahm. I understand that. So he owes it all to the Chicago Teachers Union, just like he, before that, he owes it all to Harold Washington. I understand that. And yet, my lovely lefty friends, you can't be too fast, too ahead of the public. In the public's eyes, he's the progressive. I'm all confused. Progressives are like, wait a minute, is it Chewy who's the progressive? Or is it Brandon who's the progressive? I'm very confused. I'm gonna to listen to the Ben Jarofsky show. And his guest, Michael Uterich, and get some get some kind of enlightenment on this issue. I guess today he's already uh, joined us. I'm not bringing him on yet, but he's got all these books in the background that have fired me up. <laughs> you got to see these books, Laser. I got to take a picture of these books. Hold on, Laser. I, I, I just have to take a picture of these books that are in the background. There we go. Oh my God, Michael's looking very good. So anyway, that's going on. I should be talking about that. Uh, and then in the middle of it all, I'm reading articles about Paul Vallis. This is so trippy. Paul Vallis, who is Mayor Daly's, let's not forget this, ladies and gentlemen, revenue director, who is Mayor Daly's handpicked school chieftain, who is a product of Mayor Daly's machine, is now running like this fantastical campaign that's sort of based on the fact that either most voters don't pay attention to anything that happened before yesterday, or they weren't born yet, where he sort of like reinvented himself as like this independent fiduciary wizard. Uh, one more time, Mayor Daly's revenue director, Mayor Daly's handpicked chieftain at the Chicago Board of Education. This is the guy who pretty much invented the TIF program in the city of Chicago, or who was there when the TIF program was invented. And now he's gonna lead us out of darkness into the world of light. And his campaign, follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen, is sort of predicated on attacking the Chicago Teachers Union. He's vilifying the Chicago Teachers Union. Apparently he has decided that the key to getting elected mayor of the city of Chicago is to vilify one union. Not all unions, just one union, the Chicago Teachers Union. I, I'm like, okay, that may get you elected, from like the 41st Ward. I don't even know if it'll get you elected in the 41st Ward because it's probably that's a Northwest Side Ward. Probably a lot of teachers live in the 41st Ward. So it may, it, could we annex like some downstate community where Trump does really well? If we could, we, if we could try annex some community, I'm trying to think of like real Trump land. It could get you elected. We could annex in the city of Chicago. Not sure. Paul Ballison, I wouldn't take advice from me. Definitely. Not sure that's a winning strategy, getting elected in the city of Chicago, just a bad mouth to Chicago teachers, while you're a big supporter of the police union. Now, I want to understand something, Paul Ballas. Why are the teachers union bad and the police union good? 
police union is supported right now by a gentleman who loves Donald Trump so much that he walks around with a Donald Trump T-shirt. You are an advisor to the police union. So please explain to me why in the city of Chicago, the police union, which is allied with the Trumpsters and MAGA is good. And the Chicago Teachers Union, which is aligned with people like Bernie Sanders, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, they supported the Democrats, is bad. I don't know. It's, I should be talking about that. Instead, I'm utterly obsessed with what's going on in England right now, ladies and gentlemen. What's going on in London? Yes, Liz Truss is stepping down as prime minister, has resigned as prime minister. I dutifully sent a, a link to Micah urging him to watch uh, <laughs> the interactions between Liz Truss, who is the prime minister, was the prime minister, she's just resigned, uh, and her Labour Party counterparts. And I got to say this. I have a weakness for the British style of democracy. I've always had this weakness for the parliamentary debate. I wish the Chicago City Council was more like that. We had one moment in the history of Chicago, okay, where there was debate, passionate, fiery, fierce debate between the mayor, the mayor's allies, and the mayor's opponents. And that, of course, was council wars, which happened in the 1980s when a band of white aldermen allied together against Harold Washington. Thus, discrediting the notion of opposition in Chicago government. I think absolutely everyone, the only thing left, Paul Vallis of the world and the Lori Lightfoots of the world and the Brandon Johnsons of the world will agree, is that council wars was somehow or other a bad look for Chicago. And yet it was the only moment in the city's history, recent history, where there's anything remotely resembling democracy in the city of Chicago. Only moment in the city's history where the legislatures chose their committee chairs as opposed to having the executive choose their committee chairs. The only point in Chicago's history where there was scrutiny of the mayor's proposed budget. And they screwed it up because they were just such obvious racists. We can't get anything right in the city of Chicago. We have one moment of democracy and we've tarnished the reputation of democracy forever because the people who are pushing the democracy were racists. Meanwhile, in England, somehow they survived. You gotta watch, just one time, folks, watch a debate, a parliament debate. It's like it's like Don Rickles. Uh, got a, that's a boomer reference that most people won't get. It's like a um, it's it, it, it's like one of those roasts, a roast where they get like Jay Farrell roast. Imagine just a roast where they just rip. Someone gets up and he's just, he's just ripped and assailed and assaulted and somebody else gets up and they rip the sale and people are booing and heckling. What moment like to see that happen uh, in the Chicago city council. Anyway, Liz Truss has stepped down. And I know a lot of you are trying to figure out well, what does that mean uh, for American electoral politics? Micah Udrich, uh, from a Jacobin uh, magazine has joined us, a dear friend of the show, a great lefty uh, thinker and writer. And so maybe he has some enlightenment on that. Uh, he, he just gave me a look, ladies and gentlemen, like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to bring on Micah. Micah, welcome back to the show. It's been way too long. Very glad to be back, Ben. 
And uh, so I don't know, you, you came in in the middle of uh, my rant and riff uh, about Chicago politics, how I've been distracted from pol Chicago politics, and then showed that I wasn't distracted because I'm utterly obsessed with Chicago politics. Uh, so let's get Chicago politics out of the way. You no longer live in Chicago where you live for how many years you live here, Micah? 10 years? Something 14. Like that. Damn, 14 years. Years fly. And you wrote a book. I mean, no, nothing compared to you, Ben, but you know. <laughs> Not yeah. nothing. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, 41 and counting, okay? <laughs> 41 years of bliss in Chicago. Um, and you wrote a book, of course, in the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, very well aware of the Chicago Teachers Union. I guess this is the next logical step for the Teachers Union, uh, Micah, to um, endorse one of their own, Brandon Johnson, who was a Teachers Union activist and Cook County Board Commissioner uh, for mayor. But it's complicated, of course, by the suggestion that uh, Chewy may run, who is largely a product, if you will. His, he owes his career to the Chicago Teachers Union. It's a very interesting um, dynamic here in Chicago. What's your thoughts about the Chicago Teachers Union um, getting it together to endorse one of their own uh, for mayor? It is in many ways the culmination of what the union has been up to over the last 10 or 12 years in the city. I think if you live in Chicago and you follow the local politics, it's just become normal that the CTU plays this massive role in city politics. But if you can step back from Chicago and step back from, you know, look at the longer sweep of, of history in, in the city, I mean, it's wild that this union has gone uh, from being an important player in the city, of course, but uh, not anywhere near the kind of juggernaut that they are today. Today, they are the the center of a new political universe that has been created in the city of Chicago, this sort of like broad labor left movement. They are the anchor institution of it. Uh, and I can't think of a recent moment uh, in, in history in another major American city where there has been a candidate that has been run that comes from the rank and file of a union like the Chicago Teachers Union uh, and ha is the sort of like champion, the standard bearer of uh, the kind of politics that that union has been uh, pushing for the last uh, decade plus. So it's a it's an incredibly important development. I mean, like many things that happen in Chicago, it's sort of underlooked. Uh, on the national level, but it's, it's, you know, there's nobody, there, there's no major municipal union in New York city where I now live, for example, that is running a rank and file candidate, uh, former rank and file teacher as a candidate for mayor anytime soon, or, you know, a rank and file nurse in Los Angeles, who is, uh, you know, being set up to run for the mayor of that city. Uh, this is a, in many ways, a kind of old school, you know, it, it sounds like something that would happen in the heyday of the CIO in the 1930s or something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of in, incredible development. And of course, what the, the, the reason that it is happening at all is because the CTU has made itself into this force that is not just fighting for itself. This is what I talk about in my book and what we, we write all the time about whenever you're covering the Chicago Teachers Union. This is not just a union that is, that is portrayed itself and positioned itself as out for itself and out for its members, uh, they have successfully positioned themselves as champions of the entire working class of Chicago that cares about police violence, that cares about affordable housing, that cares about what the, you know, what, how your students, the students are uh, 
experiencing their public education, not just better paying benefits for the, the members of the union, getting social workers in schools and nurses and all the rest of it. I mean, this is um, an extremely important development in uh, the American labor movement, in American progressive politics, uh, in certainly in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, it'll be very, very fascinating to watch uh, what that would happen. I'm kind of regretting I'm, li- I'm not there for it now. You know, this is a great this is a great time to be a Chicago and to see what, what goes down in this uh, in this coming uh, uh, municipal election cycle. Well, the uh, the dynamic there's a couple of dynamics at play that I uh, addressed in my opening. I can get your thoughts and engage on it. Uh, we'll put Chewy to the side for the moment. Uh, the counterpunch from Paul Vallis, uh, who former uh, school CEO and uh, former revenue department director under uh, Mayor Daley. I just want everybody to remember that. It happened a long time ago. It was in the 90s. Uh, and I give him credit for inventing the Chicago TIF program. Definitely was invented under his watch. And uh, so uh, he is running and, and, and he's clearly targeting the Chicago Teachers Union uh, as a sort of like destructive force in Chicago and that he is proud of the fact that he's going to uh, stand up to them. So he's not reaching out to the Teachers Union uh, for an alliance. He's not seeking support for them. Uh, he's not, you know, starting a campaign, even the way Lori Lightfoot did four years ago, where she knew she didn't have the Teachers Union support, but she at least went on the campaign trail and said, I realize it's just a game of politics. And when this is over, uh, I will be uh, working with the Teachers Union, of course. That promise went out the window real early. He's not even doing any of that. He's like, the enemy is Chicago Teachers Union. Proud to say I'm running against them and uh, I will stand up to them. Uh, A very interesting uh, attack uh, to make it in what has generally been a very union friendly city like Chicago. Your thoughts on the counterattack against the Chicago Teachers Union? In some ways, it's like a throwback to pre-2012 Democratic politics uh, in that before that time on the national level in Chicago and on the national level, it was becoming quite fashionable for Democrats to attack teachers unions and blame teachers unions for the state of uh, American public education. And you could actually get a lot of juice. Uh, There were a lot of people who were willing to send you some pretty hefty campaign donations uh, if you were willing to be a Democrat who was going up against uh, the, uh, a teachers union uh, or teachers unionism in general. Uh, you remember, uh, of course, the, that the documentary "Waiting for Superman." I mean, that was like a whole moment in American politics and American culture, uh, that where that there was it was sort of you, you could get a lot of traction by painting teachers unions as the enemy. But since the 2012 T- CTU strike, and since everything that has gone on in the CTU since then. I mean, think about everything that's that's t- taken place in that last decade. I mean, you've had the red state teachers revolt, you know, the, the strikes that spread to Arizona and Oklahoma and a, a number of other states from 2018 to 2019. You have the CTU clearly feeling strong enough that they can actually run a candidate of their own, not just support someone like Chewy running uh, last time around or, or several years ago, uh, but actually, uh, but running someone you know who comes from their own ranks. I mean, that is an indication of the kind of strength that the that the union has built, and so it's a sort of strange 
to see uh, somebody thinking that they can still get that kind of traction, particularly in a uh, heavily blue, you know, heavily democratic uh, area. I mean, the, the, the discourse on teachers unionism and public education has shifted significantly in the last decade. And being able to, you know, get away with the, I mean, the, the, since that 2012 strike that the CTU engaged in, teachers unions are talked about differently now by the Democratic Party. They have like taken their foot off the brake of that, those attacks because they've seen, you know, the, this, this is why people like me are so obsessed with labor unions is because when they get their act together, they can affect a real sea change uh, in politics. Uh, they can, they can, you know, fight for important uh, wages and benefits and, and all the rest of it for the members, but they can also change the whole dynamic of politics far beyond their membership roles. So I, I don't think that uh, there's much of a, you know, the enemies of labor never sleep. Uh, so we're going to continue to see attacks on the CTU in the future. Um, but given where the, given the kind of power that the CTU has built over the last decade, it seems very unlikely to me that anybody who is trying to launch some kind of full frontal assault on them is going to get very far. Yeah, and uh, and again, it, there's so many variables in the Chicago mayoral election. We're very early, uh, so I don't want to go down that road. We'll be going down that road a lot. But it, like w Paul Vallis's rhetoric may get him to a runoff. We have a runoff system in the city of Chicago. Everybody right now in the preliminary stage is just trying to figure out a lane they could drive down uh, that will get them the. the the number of votes, just the precise, precise number they need to make the runoff. And then they'll figure things out when they get to the runoff. And uh, in, in some ways, it'll be a dynamic similar to what um, is happening in the gubernatorial race where Darren Bailey, uh, the MAGA man running as a Republican uh, against J.B. Pritzker, was just out and out total MAGA unleashed in the Republican primary and is now trimming around the edges, Micah. It just it's it. <laughs> just trying to trim off some of the MAGA insanity uh, in order to pick up the swing voters. I don't think it's going to work for him. Um, but he won't come out and say, like, for instance, you know, he's uh, he won't that he's against abortion in every uh, instance like he did when he was running uh, for um, uh, in the primary. He won't say he's a Trumpster. He won't say the election was stolen. You know what I'm saying? They, they play that little game. And I'm sure uh, Vallis will be tap, tap dancing like crazy. Should he make it to uh, the finals? Uh, in, uh, and be running again. Well, it all, and then it all depends on who he's running against, uh, if he's running against a lefty or a righty. All right, uh, let's draw a correlation between what you were just talking about in Chicago and to the national scene. Uh, you uh, mentioned this very briefly, um, how the Democrats and national Dems are stumbling again as they head into midterms. And um, this is a very popular theme in this show, Micah, uh, and how the Dems are stumbling. Uh, so you talked about it in terms of which issue they should emphasize the most, abortion versus uh, economics. Uh, so we'll just start there before I take it any further. Uh, so go into greater detail about what you mean about the Democrats stumbling. Go ahead. I would not frame it as a question of abortion versus economics. What I would say, though, is that clearly... The Democratic Party feels like they have been given a, a gift in an electoral sense in that uh, Republicans have clearly uh, overstepped 
their sort of popular mandate for the kind of uh, actions that they have taken on abortion for the extreme rollback of abortion rights in this country. And it is one that goes far farther than most people uh feel comfortable with you know we've had seen things like the recent uh, uh kansas um uh, referendum on abortion rights that actually passed uh, that 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 the voters overwhelmingly chose to protect abortion rights uh, in the state of Kansas. Uh, I've seen crazy poll. The New York Times had this national map of uh, what if, if you know abortion rights were on the ballot in every state. You know, would uh, would voters today choose to protect abortion rights? And I think 46 out of the 50 states had. Uh, majorities showing that people were interested in in some modicum of protection of abortion rights rather than scaling them back. So from the Democratic point of view, this is a sort of electoral gift and this is what they are running on. And many Democrats, I'm sure, are, uh, you know, they're they're earnest in their at their horror and disgust at this kind of rollback on uh, women's right to control their own bodies. But um, there's also a way that this kind of uh, this kind of politicking, I think Democrats think that that is the one issue that they can use to sort of sail into electoral success in the midterms. And there's some really worrying signs that that's not the case, uh, that in fact, uh, you know, the New York Times had a story yesterday about how, you know, this, this strange phenomenon where voters think that democracy is at risk right now uh, but it's not their number one issue uh, for what they're voting on. They're much more worried about pocketbook economic issues and especially how the cost of in, the, the, the inflation is increasing cost of all kinds of goods right now um, and that people need relief from that, which is why Republicans have pivoted to making that a, a major messaging uh, strategy in, in, ahead of the midterms. And I think Democrats, I mean, the whole phenomenon, the whole, the whole development of Democrats since at least the 1970s has been basically to do anything but offer a robust economic agenda. And to be clear, I don't mean that they, that they shouldn't talk about abortion. I mean, you know, you can talk about abortion in you should talk about women's right to choose, but you can also talk about it in ways that are just not like an abstract right to privacy or abstract, just an abstract right. But like when women are denied the right to abortion, it affects them economically. It, it, it uh, erodes their, their status in uh, American society. Plenty of people I know, plenty of people my own age, and I'm in my 30s, plenty of uh, fairly, you know, millennial types who would normally be thinking about having kids right now, a lot of us are like, I feel like I can't have a kid because I, I'm so stretched between student loan debt and uh, the cost of rent and all of the costs of all the things that make living extremely difficult, especially in uh, major urban areas. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, and I'm a, you know, I'm a whatever, I'm a downwardly mobile millennial. I, nobody needs to shed too many tears about me, but like the majority of Americans are really suffering out here. And uh, that those kind of base needs need to be met first. There needs to be a robust economic uh, package for them to, to, to see Democrats fighting for that currently doesn't feel like it's there. Um, there's not a kind of one weird trick 
that uh, Democrats can uh, just ride into uh, political success. I don't I don't think abortion is going to be that like one weird trick that that gives them, you know, allows them to maintain control of uh, of the House and Senate and uh, expand, you know, ex expand places where they've got uh, majorities and um, all, all the rest of it. So uh, I'm very worried about where these midterms are going to go uh if i mean then this is just sort of the story of the democratic party in general over the last 50 years this sort of like abandonment of wealth redistribution of sort of robust support for uh trade unions um you know everything that we're, we're sort of in this moment where the the neoliberal turn of the democratic party over the last 50 years is you know it's still it still has its its iron grip on this party and it opens up opportunities for Republicans to come in and to uh, play on the kinds of anxieties that, that people are feeling right now uh, when it comes to their pocketbooks. So um, if there's not some kind of shift in that direction, uh, I'm very worried that the kind of far right politics that we all know have gotten a major foothold in America right now that are that are dominating the Republican Party, uh, they will continue to make gains in the midterms and maybe even in 2024 and take back the White House. Oh, all right. Well, now you really scared me. Uh, and that's why, by the way, I just want to say it's harder and harder for me uh, when I, I say this all the time on this show. Despite my uh, the fact that I dedicated all these years to writing about Chicago, and writing about Chicago politics and economic development issues and taxes issues in the city of Chicago, when I look at what I consider a very serious threat uh, to democracy in our country, uh, that is represented by the MAGA moves of the last, uh, definitely of the last five years, but. I mean, ever since uh, Trump lost to Biden, it's harder for me to really be focused on Chicago, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you alluded to the article that ran in the New York Times. And man, I'm going to go riff here and get your response. That was one of the weirdest articles uh, that I've ever read. I like to, I subscribe to the New York Times. I believe by and large, it's a very useful outlet uh, on all kinds of issues, particularly economic issues. Financial page is very important for me to understand what corporation, corporate America is really up to. And the New York Times does a pretty good job of just covering that, but not turning it into like a horse race. Uh, their political coverage is so twisted and weird. And um, it's like run by uh, self-hating liberals <laughs> who just uh, want to bend over backwards to prove that they don't have like a bias in the game. So they're watching freaking fascists overturn the capital uh, there. And on the other hand, they're like, well, on the other hand, the fascists say, I'm just saying, Ben, swing voters at a bar in Wisconsin. And I, I talked to them. They're so weird. New York Times, you're really weird. Just think about it. Paul, after you write your little story, just step back and think about what you said. So in this story, Micah, this story which is dedicated to this notion that democracy is under siege and voters don't care. Th their attitude is so cavalier. You know, well, you know, <laughs> uh, one in three voters say democracy doesn't matter, I'll vote Republican. I'm like, I think there is a loss for American democracy when people 
in the know don't take it seriously. And the people in the know are reporters for the New York Times. And when they write an article that is probably attempted as some kind of clickbait, because they know you could freak out, liberals will all click on it. Nothing, nothing gets a liberal to click uh, on an article in the New York Times, like an apocalyptic uh, tone that says, Trump's going to win no matter what you do. And the liberals <laughs> are like, I'm so scared. Click. <laughs> it's like New York Times. So I, I feel that's part of the problem. Now, feel free to defend the New York Times, Micah. Uh, but I do, do believe dumb articles like that with weird headlines like the one they put on it are part of the reason we are where we are. Your response. Well, Ben, you you put me in the awkward position of being a, you know, a socialist magazine editor who has to usually I spend my days trying to get people to attack the New York Times. But in this case, I have to defend the New York Times, at least in part from what you're saying, because I think they have had a and the tone of that article to me was like this is a big problem that people feel this way that that, that uh they see that democracy is in peril but they're not doing anything about it and they've put out all kinds of stuff all kinds of coverage around the midterm elections about you know candidates who question the results of the 2020 election the rise of that is a acceptable part of uh the republican party or a, even like in some cases, like the mainstream opinion in the Republican Party. And so I think they they are trying to, in their New York Timesy way, ring the uh, ring the alarm bell about that. But the problem, from my perspective, is that they treat it like, uh, how do you not look at what's happening and see democracy in peril and then choose to vote accordingly or act accordingly? Um, the, the problem with that mindset is that the idea of democracy being in peril, it, of course, is something that close politics watchers like you and me care about, but it's an abstract idea for most people. Uh, you know, the stuff of American democracy does not impact their day-to-day -day lives in the same way that uh, their, their worries about the cost of living going up. And, and this is just, you know, this is also, by the way, as a side note, like there are lots of authoritarian regimes around the world uh, where democracy is not present, but the, the standard of living is decent and people are not, you know, suffering on a day to day level as they go about their lives. And those regimes are often very stable because like the, the most important thing that for many people is those tangible aspects of their life, their ability to put food on the table for their families, to be able to afford housing, to not go into debt over uh, seeking any kind of medical care. If you can provide those basic things for people, then you can have a pretty stable regime, even if democracy is not present in that regime. Now, obviously, I am a partisan for democracy. I happen to think democracy is a good thing. Um, but those, those kinds of, of bread and butter issues have to be a part of any discussion of like, you know, you, you can't just browbeat voters into don't you want to defend democracy don't you see what's happening here like if they don't get the sense that the you know they might understand that the democrats for example are not trying to uh uh overturn a, an election uh based on some wild conspiracy theories about democratic uh satan worshiper uh, members of congress or something like they they get that um and but like that's not enough to get people to vote for your party you need to say yes we're we're defending democracy we don't you know we we don't believe that the other side are like worshiping 
Satan. And also we have like a, a, a tangible plan to make your life better. We see you suffering when we're going to like take on the forces in society that have made your material life worse. We're going to have an answer for you for housing. We're going to have an answer for you for the cost of food going up. We're going to have answers for, for the stuff that you feel most uh, acutely on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's the part that's missing. And so you can't just you can't just wag your finger at people about an abstract idea like democracy. You also have to have that kind of bread and butter agenda to get them on your side. Uh, fair enough. I will just point out uh, that you may have uh, left Chicago, but Chicago has not left you 14 years in Chicago. And you sound like every uh, realistic Chicago voter I ever talked to in the 90s. I'd be railing against Mayor Daley, railing against him, like the injustices of his TIF program or his property tax program or how the city council is nothing but a rubber stamp. We don't have democracy because all he does is appoint uh, his cronies and uh, robot followers to all positions of authority. And they, they go, Ben, if you don't like it here, move to Detroit, okay? <laughs> this is how you run a city. Mayor Daly knows what he's doing. And who cares about democracy? I'm like, God damn, man. <laughs> you know, he would have made a great uh, authoritarian leader, you know, in like Turkey or something. Like Mayor Daly would have done a great job because he, fig he clearly figured out how to like, keep people at least uh, in, in, you know, he was doing, as you rep reported on uh, tirelessly, he was doing all kinds of awful pro-corporate deals and uh, not exactly a paragon of democratic uh, governance coming from Mayor Daley. But, you know, the, the city was not crumbling uh, when he was there. And, you know, that's, that is enough to uh, keep a lot of people pretty happy. So. I completely disagree with that last statement. The city wasn't crumbling while I was there. It was a steady crumbling in many neighborhoods throughout the city of Chicago. And by the end of his regime, they didn't even have enough money to do uh, street pavement. The whole reason you're supposed to vote for Mayor Daley and Mayor Rahm and Mayor Lori Lightfoot now is that they can get the streets paved. And now we're on a three-year cycle. I don't blame you for leaving Chicago because you're, you're a bike rider. You know this as a bike rider. We're in a three-year cycle of paving streets in Chicago. So there's the non-pavement season, which is from the moment the mayor is newly elected uh, till three years in, when suddenly he or she has to worry about re-election. And then it's like, hurry up and pave those streets. And then the bike riders were, you know, they, t they, they think most voters can only remember, like, as I said, like six months previous, well, mm -hmm. streets are paved now, I'll vote for Lori Lightfoot. So I'm going to push back with you on that one. I wrote a story once in 2006 where we're, the, we're talking about the blue line not running. God, this is ancient history. And I'm like, guys, I understand that the reason you're supposed to vote for fascists is they make the trains run on time. But our trains aren't even running on time. <laughs> You're correct. There. I went I went back to Chicago recently and I was I was shocked at the wait times for the blue line when I was trying to get on it. So, yeah, I it's it's rough, although I have to tell you, in terms of paving streets, New York, biking in New York has become uh, yeah, Chicago looks like paradise in comparison to biking in New York, not necessarily because of the potholes, but for but for the weird stuff that drivers and pedestrians are doing all the time. But I, I digress. Your point is, uh, is well, is well taken. That's why he had to get, maybe that's why he had to get out of there. Cause he knew the bill was coming due for all the stuff, all the ways that the city was indeed crumbling under mayor Daly. And he probably still be getting elected uh, mayor <laughs> if he, if he were running. Uh, but uh, I went on a tangent there and your basic point is a, a very good one. 
uh, and you uh, make it a lot uh, when you come to the show and you, and you make it in, in your writing and Miles got flash and your partner in crime in so many instances makes it when he comes on the show as well. Uh, and that is that uh, the Democrats have to stand for something real and concrete that people can see that benefits them. And I would argue they could run on that. <laughs> but they run away from it. So I share yourself of a sense of frustration. I do believe they should be outspoken champions of reproductive rights, abortion rights. Of course, yeah. And, uh, they should just shine that spotlight on the Darren Baileys of the world so they can't wiggle out of it. No doubt in my mind, they should absolutely do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like in a, when you view Micah, the record of the Biden administration and the Democrats uh, in the Senate and the House over the last two years since the 2020, uh, since he was sworn in in 2021, what would be the argument you would make to justify voting to keep the House and the Senate in Democratic hands? Well, I'm not in the business of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm not a, a, a Democrat. I'm not a liberal. I, I think that uh, the, the Democrats are screwing up left and right all the time. So I don't think anybody would be calling upon me to give them any kind of advice, given my record of, of uh, critique of them. I mean, it is true that the alternative is really terrifying. And I mean, I'm very worried about where all kinds of things could go, you know, if the right makes huge gains in the midterms and especially if Trump, a, a sort of newly reinvigorated Trump, you know, comes back in 2024. I mean, the kind of whatever. I mean, historically, when when these kinds of figures uh, come to office and are, are uh, newly empowered, it uh, doesn't bode well for like left wing magazine editors like myself, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of historical instances where people like me end up in jail. So I, I mean, you know, from my perspective, of course, I, the kind of misery, the kind of authoritarianism, the kind of upward flow of resources to the, all the most to the, only the most wealthy people in our society. I mean, that's going to just continue uh, under uh, the Republican Party. So that's more than enough for me to if I were in a swing state to be casting my vote uh, for uh, uh, Democrats who are running against Republicans. But I just that that is what the Democratic Party has relied on is like, well, at least we're not the other guys for several decades at this point. And it's just it's just not enough. I mean, uh, and, you know, there's not nothing on the board over the last two years uh, in, uh, in American politics. I mean, there have been some important progressive measures that have been made. You know, there's some good stuff in their Inflation Reduction Act. I am uh, uh, glad that $10,000 of my own student loans are going to be uh, disappearing, hopefully, if Joe Biden hasn't clawed that back uh, already. Um, but it doesn't add up to enough in my mind uh it's not a coherent narrative for the average voter uh to see the kind that kind of tangible stuff being delivered from for them yet uh you know it'll, it'll be the alternative and you know i anybody who would ask me i would tell them it's better than what we would get under uh right-wing rule but we need something more than this if we're gonna avoid this further sliding into uh, right-wing authoritarianism in the future. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, that brings me to uh, Liz Truss uh, in uh, England. Uh, and I know you're not an expert on British uh, politics, and neither am I, okay, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing uh, that I found very interesting, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that her downfall um, was largely linked to uh, the tax cuts, these massive tax cuts uh, that um, uh, she uh, passed for uh, the wealthiest people in, in Britain. And um, in, in the middle of this economic crisis with inflation, uh, it was the worst message, I suppose, you could send out that um, we are going to take care of your economic needs by making the wealthier people even wealthier than they already are. Uh, so they have more money to spend on items which would drive up the price of the items and contribute to inflation. It just like it didn't make sense. It uh, it violated just all standards of like decency of how you run government. It's everything you could have said about Donald Trump's tax uh, break in 2017. Somehow or other, in Britain, this led to her stepping down. And I watched with fascination the debate in parliament over it. Uh, a debate, Micah, the likes of which I cannot recall seeing in Congress or in the State House, uh, the General Assembly in Springfield, or the Chicago City Council, which is one of, has some of the most regressive tax policies in the city of Chicago. The way we fund our government is so regressive uh, and so unfair. Our property tax system is outrageous. So, I mean, like, what kind of uh, lessons do you draw from it? Or do you, or do you think it just there's it, it doesn't apply? Like England is so different than the United States that their lessons don't apply to ours. What's your general thoughts about this? Well, the trust case is sort of interesting because she was pursuing this classic right wing economic agenda, but it seemed to have gone so far in that direction that the money men and women of the UK, even, you know, the, the city, the, their equivalent of Wall Street, even the city was like, you've gone way too far in this direction. Even the rich people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're not going to be able to yeah. you know, keep the lights on if you're doing this. And so they, she lost uh, uh, the confidence of those forces in British society. Uh, and, um, and, and seemingly because she was still obsessed with that kind of free market orthodoxy. Um, so I guess it's glad that somebody stopped there from doing it. On the other hand, there are many examples historically. We just published a piece in Jacobin about this today that it's not exactly democratic when like the Wall Street types are the ones who get to, you know, call the tune of whether or not you get to survive in office. Uh, if You know, and from you know, my own perspective as a socialist, I mean, there are plenty of left wing governments who then uh, the fi you know finance the, the uh, global forces of capital uh, array against them, and you know uh, use every throw everything that they've got against uh, the, that country's economy, and things that go very badly for them. So, in some ways, it's not a great precedent for uh, democratic policymaking. Um, 
You know, on the other hand, though, if we're going to be stuck with these awful right wing leaders, I heard Boris Johnson is considering coming back. It sounds it sounds like a, it's almost like a pro wrestling, uh, uh, play, you know, like uh, narratives of like, my God, is that Boris Johnson's music? You see him like running back from the outside, like at least we'll have some sort of entertainment while the world burns. I don't know. He's, he's certainly more more of an interesting buffoon to watch crash and burn a, a society rather than Liz Trust. So. <laughs> well, he, he had to leave, uh, ladies and gentlemen. He was the f uh, prime minister before Trust. He had to leave because of Partygate. Uh, right. We're not making this stuff up. I cannot make this stuff up. Another thing where you're like looking at this this scandal in the UK, and you're like, this is nothing in comparison to what the America like. This this is ever, this is a drop in the bucket in comparison to the kind of stuff that Trump was doing. And yet, like there were no you know Trump's presidency was he was never in danger like serious danger of getting kicked out of office because of his flagrant violation of COVID laws. I mean, it's it's a really sad commentary on what the elites are able to get away with uh, and how there's just you know the, at the very least. You know, if you break some rules in some countries and you're a major political elite, there are sometimes consequences. That doesn't seem to be the case here in the United States. Now I'm going to take it one step further. Uh, so I'm going to follow up on what you said. So uh, Trust, Prime Minister Trust, apparently went too far uh, and upset the Wall Street types in England, the, their equivalent of our Wall Street types. Uh, and they abandoned uh, their support for the Conservative Party, her reign, and so she's had to step down. This, this, this analysis of what was going on in England followed our conversation by about five minutes, where democracy as we know it in the United States is the issue at stake in these midterm elections. All right, they could the Republicans, if they're victorious, will be free to just throw out votes. They could say to Wisconsin, Milwaukee, we don't like how you voted, black people. Votes thrown out. Wisconsin now goes to Trump. Hey, Detroit, we're throwing out your this is what they tried to do in 2020. Throw out the votes in Milwaukee. Let's get concrete about it. If it's not abstract, if it's too abstract for you voters, I'm gonna get concrete. Milwaukee votes gone. Detroit's votes gone. Atlanta votes gone. Everywhere Philadelphia votes gone. Wherever there are black people living, we're throwing out their vote. We're gonna manufacture an argument of fraud, which is a completely non-existent, made-up invention, and we're going to use that to justify throwing out thousands and thousands of votes. Apparently, that doesn't scare Wall Street types in, 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 in this country, like Liz Truss, tax cuts have... <laughs> I'm like... We need better Wall Street types, Mike. I mean, we got the wimpiest freaking Wall Street type. Or maybe, or maybe they just love making money so much. And really, what do they care about black votes in um, Milwaukee or uh, Detroit? That's my reaction, though, when I think about it. You're right. You know, there's more vigilance from Wall Street types in England than there are in the United States. Or am I giving them too much credit? Micah, I, I would. Wall Street types in America are hardly being disempowered at this point in time. I think they they're pretty much getting everything that they want. Uh, so they're pretty happy. I mean, that you know, if Trump were to cross some kind of line, if Trump as president, or if God forbid he's elected again in twenty twenty four, if he were to cross some 
line that they had drawn in the sand, uh, then he would certainly be uh, facing significant pushback from those types. So, you know, these are the these are the, the masters of the universe here for us. They're the ones who are calling the tune of a lot of uh, our politics. So I'm not, I'm not quite ready to say that they're that they're being wimpy, quite the contrary at this point. But but, you know, the, the, the real countervailing force for all of this, the, the, you know, we can't hope that w Wall Street shows up to save the day or whatever. I mean, we need like a, 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 a certainly a reborn trade union movement in the United States. We need we need a rebuilding of the kind of forces that can push back against this kind of madness. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, there's there's important stuff happening all kinds of places. And Chicago is certainly one of them. Again, this is what makes the mayor's race that's happening there so important and, and the work that the CTU has done. Um, because it is it is one of the um, one of the clearest sort of rebuildings of these the kind of working class power uh, that has been so desiccated uh, and that has been that has left our cities and our country largely in the hands of Wall Street types. Uh, so you know there's there are some countervailing powers that are being uh, built here, but there's going to have to be a lot more uh, if we're going to you know, avoid the kind of uh, apocalyptic uh, right-wing authoritarianism that seems to be coming down the pike. Uh, before I let you go, uh, you want to get, get any uh, uh, recommendations for some great Jacobin articles that people should know about that uh, you want to alert our listeners to? Just had the release of our new print issue. I guess since the last time I've talked to you, we've had a uh, completely redone uh, print issue that for my money, I have nothing to do with it. I run the online website, so I'm neutral. This is a total neutral description. It's an incredible doc. I mean, it's like no other print magazine that you've ever seen. It's glossy. It's, it's huge. It's got all kinds of beautiful pictures and great feature writing. It's, uh, you know, magazine style feature writing. It's, I'm very proud of where the uh, publication is going. And the new issue is on inflation. It's on exactly uh, some of the kind of topics that we've been discussing here today. So uh, I would encourage people to, uh, you can get uh, for $30 an annual subscription to Jacobin, uh, get our new issue on inflation. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got all kinds of that we have daily content on our website. We've got a YouTube channel. We have a book series. We've got a bunch of different podcasts. So you can check them all out if you go to jacobin.com, J-A-C-O-B-I-N.com. All right, very good, Mike. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say, uh, uh, I, I reposted an uh, old interview. I don't know if I told you this, uh, but there was a show where you and Brandon Johnson were on the show. Do you remember this? That yes, I do. I wasn't scheduled that way. It just happened. Uh, and it was it was so much fun listening to it uh, because you guys obviously have a pretty good relationship. He was teasing you and you were coming back. And there was a mini debate uh, on the I forget what the issue was. It was probably the uh, Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren, if I remember correctly. Yeah, as soon as you said that, it came back. Yes, it was very it was like another time. I always go back to the, the summer of 2019 as the golden years. <laughs> before apocalypse descended uh and trump was the president it's very bizarre that's the view i have i guess things just keep getting worse but anyway i urge everybody to check it out it's on uh, the show it's, it was just a funny debate uh it was just you guys were clearly uh friendly adversaries and 
Well, and Ben, if you remember, there was a time at First Tuesdays at the hideout where Brandon was on stage with you and he and I got into a little bit. Uh, I was on the floor. You know, I asked during the Q&A section, we got into a little bit of a of a discussion. Uh, you know, Brandon, I, he's somebody who I interviewed for my first book, uh, somebody who I uh, admire very much. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a partisan for the labor movement and for left-wing politics. Uh, and Brandon has been very central to the kind of agenda that the CTU has carried out. So we've got some, we have some disagreements on the uh, the 2020 presidential election, but I'll, I'm happy to put that under the uh, under the bridge and be ex very exciting to see where, uh, where things go with, with Brandon and the CTU in the yeah. months and years to come. All right, very good, Mike. I thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. It's always a blast talking to you. Uh, and uh, get back to reading those books. Folks, I wish you could see it. It's a very uh, quick question. Are they in alphabetical order? Is there any logic to the ordering or is it just uh, all order by topic? Damn, that's how you do it. Ben, I have a, you know, Ben, I, I have very few skills. And one of the only ones I possess is that I can read a book from beginning to end. So, you know, this is this is all I got going for me is this, is no, this library back here. <laughs> not only can you read a book from beginning to end, this is another show you appeared. This is actually one of our uh, most people really love this show. Uh, he can read a book while walking down the street. Remember that show where you came on to talk about your encounter with Lori Lightfoot? Uh, I love that show. That was I forget when that was. You got you got to get your reading in and your exercise in. Yeah, you got to read and read and walk, I, you know, and then when you're reading and you're walking, people see you on the street. They're like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you reading? And then you got a conversation starter. It's perfect. This is this is it's a great way to go about life. Just I people to, like, why are you doing this weird thing walking down the street? I used to I think I told you this It's kind of embarrassing. I went through a phase where I would walk, walk the dog and do a crossword puzzle at the same time. Wow. It was a weird phase of my life. I've lived a long life, so I've had all kinds of different phases. And that was just like the cross <laughs> word. I've not, I don't even do crosswords anymore, uh, Micah. I feel they're a waste of time. So I, uh, although, you know, anything, folks, I mean, having said that, anything you can do to stave off dementia, do it. So if crosswords are the thing, do it. Wordle's the thing, do it. Check out the, the New York Times spelling bee, Ben. I know you're mad at the New York Times, but check out their word game, the spelling bee. This is my uh, new addiction, spelling okay. bee. See, I, you know, I I read. That's pretty much what I do, uh, and uh, obsessively follow Bulls basketball. And it, it's so far, it's working. Well, you'll stave off dementia from the crosswords, but then the Bulls will give you, you know, heart heart problems or something. <laughs> Shout out to my beloved Bulls, victorious last night in Miami. The game over. The that's AC true. Yeah. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, 37 points. That's why we call him the Marvelous. Uh, Micah, thank you very, very much. You're the man. Uh, and sometime I'll tell you how I arrange my books, but I won't bore our listeners with that. Uh, but it's a bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> book, book arrangement. That would actually be funny. Book arrangement. That would be fun. No, seriously, that would be fun to go through your library and like do an annotation. Like this book means this to me for the following reason you know what i'm saying uh i actually you know what i'm i'm gonna do that i think that would be fun to do i do weird stuff like that with mcdumkey we'll talk about old albums from uh his album collection we talk about that all the time so might as well do your books all right micah i'm gonna let you get back to work thank you very much for taking the time as i said and i also want to thank uh 
who is it? Chris. I forgot for a moment that we have so many different producers in the show since uh, uh, Dr. D went on paternity leave. Uh, Chris from Alton doing an outstanding job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.